If you're joining us for the first time or you haven't followed our series up to this point, hit and miss, uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 15. Last week, we saw Jesus being crucified. We saw him being seized by the soldiers, being mocked by him. They dressed him up in a garment of purple, which reflected royalty. They twisted a crown of thorns and put that on his head to mock him. They placed a reed in his hand. And the soldiers gathering around him took sticks and started beating this king to mock him further, spit on him, punching him. Earlier, he had been scourged or whipped. And so the brutality up to this point has been um, very overwhelming. We saw him being led out of Jerusalem to a place just across the valley called the place of Golgotha. And that's where they nailed Jesus to a cross. He's suspended up in the air. And as the Romans often did, they labeled his crime on the cross. So above his head, here is the crime. And the crime is king of the Jews. At the crucifixion site, at Golgotha, there were three groups of people. There were the religious leaders who were there who were all too happy to see Jesus being killed and taken out of their lives. There were the crowds that were passing by, and there were two thieves on either side of him. And Mark's text tells us that all three of those groups were mocking him. They were appealing to him to function in his role as the Messiah, the Messiah who is the deliverer, the Messiah who's supposed to come into Jerusalem, wear a literal crown with a scepter, if you will, sit on the throne and exert his rule. And they started mocking this king that's up on the cross saying, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, well save yourself and come down. And so the question is, why did Jesus not come down from the cross like a superhero? I mean, in our minds, you can, you can almost come up with an alternate ending right now where Jesus is suspended up on the cross and all the world is looking at him. Now he has everyone's attention. Why not just, like the Hulk, just bulge out, come off the cross, fly over to Jerusalem, sit on the throne, and say, I'm here to reign. And everybody would have been, whoa, he is the Messiah, he is the king, but he didn't. Why didn't Jesus come down from the cross? Why didn't he use just his words that he had used earlier to cast demons out, to heal people with leprosy, to raise people from the dead? Well, the reason why Jesus did not come down from the cross at Golgotha on that day was because of his role. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Messiah delivers and as you read the Bible against the backdrop of Jesus being the deliverer, you have to ask the question, whom is he delivering and from what is he delivering them? Well, he's delivering us. We're all sinners. We're, we're captives to our sin. And what we deserve in our captivity to sin is the just wrath of God because we've sinned against God. So here we're standing before God. And from the very beginning of Scripture, you see that God 
is a holy God who requires justice and judgment towards sin. And here is Jesus, here on the cross, as the Messiah. He's the one who's coming to deliver those who have stood before God as guilty. From the very beginning of Scripture, you see that God had implemented a plan from before the foundation of the world. And this plan was that for those who are guilty in their sin, they need a substitute. They need someone who can stand in their place and bear the wrath and judgment that they deserve, but somebody else who can take that. But not only that, they also need a substitute who has lived a perfect, innocent life, who will give that perfect, innocent life as a gift to them so that they can be in relationship with God. And so from the very beginning of Scripture, there were these shadows and these pictures with the sacrificial system where an innocent lamb, a pure lamb, a goat, would be taken under the hand of a priest, held down by the forceful hand, and killed there. And the picture there was that the sin of the offender was being placed on the lamb there, and that's what the sinner deserved. The sinner deserves death. And the innocence and the purity of the lamb was being transferred to the offender so that he or she could come back into fellowship with God. But of course, animals do not equate in value with humans. If you sin against somebody greatly, and you say, well, here's a, here's a dog. Let the dog pay the punishment. You say, no, 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 no. That, that's not skin for skin. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that. The writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats was not going to be sufficient. Instead, the only true exchange would be a sinless, perfect person standing in your place before God. A person who would take your sin upon him and offer you his life. And that person now is the Messiah who's on the cross, Jesus who is on the cross. This is true skin for skin. So in the book of Mark, we're introduced to Jesus who is the Christ the deliverer, and he's also the son of God. And in the first half of Mark, what we're seeing is an explanation of who Jesus is. We're seeing his identity. We're seeing that through his miracles and through his teaching and even through the affirmation of God and even the demons, we're seeing he is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the son of God. But then in the middle of the book, what what starts to develop more fully is what is his mission? How is this deliverer going to carry out his deliverance? And so three times the deliverer goes to his disciples and he says, hey, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be handed over by the priests, the scribes, delivered up to the Gentiles and killed. And Peter hears that. And the first time in chapter eight, Peter's like, that's not a deliverer. Deliverers don't go and die. Deliverers win. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus has those stern words for him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Satan wants to thwart the deliverance. And so here is Jesus in his mission, having to go to the cross, and as Mark 10, 45 says, his deliverance is going to be that he's going to deliver those by giving up his life as a ransom for many. 
And in order to do that, Jesus, who can easily come down from the cross, he could have easily resisted the whole cross with just a word. He is going to willfully stay on the cross and receive the judgment of God that we deserved upon ourselves. He's going to take it upon himself and he dies so that he, a perfect substitute, can be offered to each person here today as a gift. So this morning, as we're looking at Mark, I want you to see clearly that Jesus is willing to die on the cross to deliver you from the wrath of God. That's what this section is about. And that needs to be, if you will, our big idea that Jesus is willfully dying on the cross to deliver you from the wrath of God. So in this section, or in this paragraph, there are three points, three events that we see. The previous events leading up to this were largely about what humanity was doing to Jesus. And now in this section, we are seeing what God is doing at the cross. So there are three points to the sermon this morning. Point number one is going to be the darkness. Point number two is going to be the cry. And point number three is going to be the death. The darkness, the cry, and the death. Okay, so the darkness, that begins in verse 33. The darkness. Earlier, Mark had told us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour of the day. Now, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. in the morning. So the third hour of the day, if you're looking at the clock, is now 9 o'clock in the morning when Jesus goes to the cross. And now Mark brings us to the sixth hour of the day. So we go from the third hour at nine o'clock to the sixth hour, which is noon. So verse 33 says, and when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three, there's darkness over the whole land. And some have wondered if this is some kind of solar eclipse like where the moon passes in front of the sun, blocks it out. That would be impossible because Passover, which is the holiday that the Jews are celebrating in this particular week, is a holiday that is arranged according to the moon cycles, the lunar calendar. And so Passover happens on the full moon at night, not during the day where it would be possible that it would block the sun. The other thing that's going on here is that the text tells us that there is darkness for three hours, and if you've ever been around any kind of partial solar eclipse, or maybe you've been in a full uh, solar eclipse, that, that darkness really only lasts for about seven to ten minutes. So here's darkness that is blanketing the whole land for three hours. And the question is, why darkness? Well, what do we know about darkness in the Bible? Let's look at the theme of darkness for just a few minutes. Darkness is presented throughout the Bible as a means or as an aspect, a sign of God's judgment. Four passages that I want you to see. Exodus 10, Pharaoh is refusing to let the people of Israel go. God has sent forms of judgment on Pharaoh. And so the ninth form of judgment, the ninth plague right before the Passover happens is this theme of darkness, is this plague of darkness, Exodus 10 verses 21 and 22. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. In Isaiah, we see about the theme of judgment and darkness again there. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. He doesn't have a shortened hand. He's got a long hand who can reach forward, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Okay, so here's your iniquities. Here's your sin. It's created a chasm between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay, what's the fallout that God has for those who have walked in their sin? Just a few verses later, verses 9 and 10. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Again, the theme of darkness. Amos, the prophet Amos, he brings up the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment that is coming. And on Amos, in Amos 8, verse 9, the prophet says, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So what's happening at the cross is like a pouring out, the initial pouring out of the day of the Lord. Here's a form of God's judgment that is being sprinkled out on Jesus, an already not yet picture of the day of the Lord. Then in Matthew chapter 25, here's another theme of God's judgment in the form of darkness where Jesus is speaking here about the servants and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's the point that you need to see that darkness is a sign of God's judgment towards sin. And the thick darkness that is covering the land right now, as you look at scripture and as you bring this to bear on the moment, is an evidence of God's unique judgment in this particular time. God is in, if you will, his court seat and pouring out judgment at this time for three hours. Now, think about this, if you will, from just a personal perspective. If you can just sort of try to soak this in so that it's not just information. You know that it's possible for you to go into a room and control the light and the darkness. My, my boys sometimes, and I did it when I was young, we love to play hide and go seek in the dark parts of the house. You can go into a room with no windows, turn off the lights, and it's complete dark. And it's kind of eerie, but you're in complete control right there with that switch. What's really kind of weird is on those hot summer days when the sky becomes that dark gray and you look out the window and in that moment, you know that there's something inside of it where you're almost held in like this awe of what's going on out there. You feel very small and insignificant wondering What's going to happen right now? Is this going to be a real thundercracker? Are trees going to go down? And it's in those moments that you know you're not in control. I can only imagine that at the cross that day at high noon, this is thick 
darkness that is coming over the land. And everybody knows something is going on here. And Mark and the writers of, the, of Scripture are showing us this is the judgment of God. This is the cup of God's wrath that we've read about where Jesus now has to drink the cup of God's judgment. So we've seen the physical suffering of the scourging and the beatings and the wooden cross. But now God is pouring out a unique suffering, a unique kind of pain that is going to be on Jesus. It's his judgment. So point number two, we move to the cry. As God's eerie darkness covers the land, Mark turns our attention from the skies, if you will, to the middle cross. And he says in verse 34 that as Jesus is up on the cross, having been brutally afflicted in all these physical ways, the darkness has covered the whole land, that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we look at this phrase, I think we have to be ready to say on the front end that with our human limitations, we are not going to be able to fully appreciate the depth of what Jesus is saying here. Here's Jesus who from eternity past has enjoyed perfect harmony with the Father, perfect relationship with the Father. I think we get brief glimpses of that even in good relationships. There's brief glimpses where you just know, hey, I feel completely transparent. I feel completely at peace. I feel completely comfortable with this person. God had that. The Father had that with the Son from eternity past, and that's all they knew. Complete trust with one another. In the Gospel of John, we see that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father perfectly. No inhibitions, no challenges present. And in this moment, there is something that takes place where the Father is forsaking the Son. It's not that the Son ceased to be the Son or the Father ceased to be the Father. It's not that Jesus ceased to be God at all. He retained his divinity. But in that moment, something deep and painful is happening where the Father is forsaking the Son. Now, we know that physical pain, it, it is a burden to bear. But there is something that goes beyond physical pain, and that's relational pain. When somebody has deeply hurt you, disappointed you, abandoned you, that's something that goes deep down to who you are in that moment. And here's Jesus on the cross. He's been hurt by Peter, denied by him three times, betrayed by Judas, condemned by the religious leaders, killed by the soldiers. And when Jesus is up there, he's not saying, Peter, Peter, why did you deny me? It's not Judas, why did you betray me? It's not religious leaders, why did you condemn me? In that moment, the deepest pain, the agony that goes beyond all of the physical suffering that he's experiencing right now is a forsakenness that is taking place between him and the Father. It's a painful suffering that he is experiencing right now. 
All we can do at this moment is kind of come up to the edge of this in our human limitations, just kind of scratch the surface with the hurts and pains that we've experienced on a relational level and say something exponentially deeper is going on with the Son and the Father right now. A forsakenness that is going on. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can this be happening? What does it mean? Well, this picture right now leads us to the doctrine of substitution, what we were talking about at the beginning of the sermon. Substitution is taking place right now. An exchange is, being going, is taking place right now where the father and the son who had lived in perfect harmony with one another are now experiencing a different relationship. And some have said it's like the father is turning his back on the son. Whatever it is, we know that judgment is being poured out on Jesus. So passages like 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so you see that word propitiation there. Propitiation simply means that God's wrath and God's judgment that was supposed to land on me and you as sinners is now being diverted from you and me and placed on someone else. This is the propitiation right here. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's receiving the wrath of Almighty God that we deserve in eternal hell, and it's being diverted from us, and it's being placed on Jesus in that moment. Jesus, who knew no sin from eternity past, is being swallowed up, heaped up by our sin coming to him and by God's judgment coming upon him. And in that moment, he's experiencing the forsakenness, the perfect harmony that existed between the Father and the Son, abandonment in some form, judgment from God that we deserved is being placed on him. And so in that moment, when that relationship is being broken apart, entering into this, this relationship where he's receiving wrath now, He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is intentionally using scripture here. Uh, what better way to cry out to the Lord than using scripture? And this, this phrase, my God, my God, is a phrase that is taken from the Psalms. It's Psalm 22, verse 1. And as you read the Psalms, the Psalms as... Uh, one of our speakers once said, is like language of the soul. You're, you're feeling pain? Go to the Psalms. And the Psalms gives you language for what you're experiencing inside. And here is Jesus experiencing forsakenness. When you go to the Psalms, forsakenness has this idea of being abandoned, being alone, experiencing the lack of God's favor or grace in the moment. It's the language of separation. Um, and I think on human levels, 
many of us have little dustings in our lives, experiences in our lives of abandonment. Somebody abandoned you. Somebody forsook you. Somebody walked away from you. And, and you're out of favor with them. There, there is a, a new relationship now. What was there before is gone, and now the new relationship is one that is filled with all kinds of abandonment, hurt, and pain. And that's what Jesus is experiencing as the one who stands in our place. Now, this scene of Jesus being on the middle cross, bearing the judgment of our sin, the language from the Psalms is there, and the Apostle Paul picks it up in the book of Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law says you need perfect obedience. If you break the law, here's what happens to lawbreakers. A curse comes upon you. And how did he do this? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul, in writing Galatians, is just simply borrowing language from Deuteronomy 21. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So as Jesus is on the cross here, he is fulfilling the full range of judgment that we deserve. Hanging on a tree and being cursed by God. Judgment. And that's where we were supposed to be. That's where we are supposed to be on the receiving end of all of this darkness funneled down into our lives for eternity in hell. He's experiencing the full range of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, on the cross there, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the substitution language again. Jesus is becoming sin. God doesn't approve of sin. He must take judgment. So as Jesus is on the cross, you must realize that this cry is a genuine cry. This is not just lip service because these words were in the Old Testament, therefore we better say them here to fulfill them here in time and history, and then we get to keep moving. No, this is full-on agony, pain, and suffering. Do you remember moments when you knew that you disobeyed your dad and you truly disobeyed him, meaning he got it right and you deserved a spanking of judgment? As a youngster, there were those moments where you're not in control. Like, I'm at the mercy now of my father. Go back to the back bedroom. Down the hall we go. And inwardly just being shaken because I know that I have to face the judgment that's coming. So it was horrifying. And uh, you take those little emotions that you remember from being five, six, seven. And now this is an adult emotion, adult experience that Jesus is having. And you think about it, what would it be like to experience the guilt of my sin that I committed yesterday? 
The guilt of my sin that I committed on Friday. The guilt of my sin that I committed Sunday through this moment, this morning. Along with the sins that I had committed in the past, the previous months. You know, all of that guilt just kind of heaping up. There's guilt in those moments when I commit sin. And now we just keep adding them up and up and up and up and up and up. And the text is saying from 1 John that here is Jesus who has all of the towers of our sin. He became sin for us. All of your sin, all of the thoughts that come to your mind about your past sin are being placed on Jesus in that moment. All of the future sins that you will commit are being placed on Jesus in that moment. And here is God the Father coming to him with wrath saying, here is the judgment that you deserve for all of that. So for all of us, here we are looking at the one Savior and what we have in common is he took our sins for us. So if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, this theme of Jesus being the substitute, being forsaken by God in the sense that he went from being his son in perfect harmony now to his son who is receiving judgment, this theme is what we call the gospel. It's the good news now that you and I aren't under the wrath of God, nor are we condemned by God under his wrath forever and ever in hell because Jesus is on the cross as the deliverer for us. Saying, I'll deliver you, and I'll deliver you, and I'll deliver you, and I'll deliver you for all of the sins that you've committed. And now the Bible commands you, if you're a non-Christian, you're looking at the Savior who has given this for you. All of it has been placed on him. And now your response to that is not just to say, oh, that's a good Sunday morning sermon. Don't let that be. I hope you don't walk away and just be like, oh, that was kind of interesting. If you're a non-Christian, the Bible commands that you would repent from where you've been, meaning turn from the way of life that you've been in, and believe in Jesus as the one who did this. And so God is not looking for a mountain of good works that you bring to him. No, you still have your sin that has to be dealt with. And the Bible is saying, repent and believe in Jesus. Believe in him as your savior. And what takes place in that moment is that God is saying, okay, I will divert the eternal wrath that you deserve for your sins onto Jesus, but I'm giving Jesus's life of obedience to you as a gift. And so now, Christian, we walk through life with this, this precious treasure. The obedience of Jesus is a gift to us that we didn't deserve at all. And so for us, we can stand before God and we can hear the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we look at that and say, he forsook the son for us. And the judgment came down upon him for us. Psalm 103, verse 12. Did Jesus take the sin? Yes. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So we all have sins in our mind that we've committed. We all know that we've offended God. And Satan wants to say, oh, that's still you. You're still that sinner. 
And here's the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Removed as far as the east is from the west. It's on Jesus. It's done. It's dealt with. It's no longer yours. And so at first, you can look at yourself before God and say, okay, God, I believe. It's hard for me to believe that sometimes, but I believe that that status is mine. But not only is it your status, but it's every brother and sister in Christ's status. So we look across this room, and as we come together as Christians and sing about the goodness of Jesus Christ, we're collectively saying, yes, that is our Savior who stood in our place. So Jesus makes the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. There are some who are standing there, and they hear the sound, Eloi, Eloi, and mistake it for him calling out to Elijah. Elijah, Elijah. Elijah was the Old Testament prophet who had been taken up, never experienced death. They're expecting Elijah to come, and I think they missed Elijah and John the Baptist, as we see in the Gospels. Jewish thought was that Elijah would come and help out those who were in trouble. So some go and get him some sour wine and are ready to hand it up to him on a sponge so that he can drink it. And others are saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Maybe it was a well-meaning Jew who really believed in Elijah and this was like the last ditch effort. Maybe it was a religious priest who had condemned him earlier and is now just standing there in mockery watching Jesus breathe nearly his last. Jesus is crying out, though, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is he's done that so that you and I can have life. Point number three is the death. In verse 37, the Bible says that Jesus uttered a loud cry. Mark doesn't tell us what this loud cry is. So as we look at the parallel Gospels, as we look at Luke and as we look at John, John has Jesus saying, it is finished, meaning the full, the full process of God's wrath has been poured upon him. It's done. And then Luke's Gospel has Jesus crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, meaning that he died. So Jesus died. He's on the cross. He's dead. And Mark includes two events that happen at his death. Verse 38 says that the curtain of the temple. So he's outside of Jerusalem. He dies. The temple is inside of Jerusalem. And the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. This curtain is a thick fabric, thick, massive fabric that is torn from top to bottom. It separates the back part of the temple the most holy place from the front part of the temple. This is a sign, just like the darkness, that God is at work here. And what is God saying? He's saying, my presence is no longer to be associated with the back room of that temple. All of these temple things that have been going on, as we've been reading through the book of Mark, have been abused of God's system of temple throughout the Old Testament. AD 70, it's going to be sacked, destroyed, crumbled, it's done. And so this temple curtain is torn where, where God's presence is supposed to dwell. And the question is, so what do we have now? Do, do we have any hope that 
God can be present with us or that we can be in God's presence. And the writer of Hebrews picks this up in such like colorful language, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that holy room in the back of the temple, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. How is it that we're going to be able to make it into God's presence? It's through the exclusive person of Jesus Christ alone. The second event that happens is a declaration. A declaration from a pagan Gentile standing at the foot of the cross. This is a centurion. And he says, you can see it here. He says in verse 39, truly this man was the son of God. And we've been waiting for somebody to say this in the book of Mark all the way up to this point. The father has said it in chapter 1 at the baptism where he ripped open the heavens, tore open the heavens and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 2, the demons are coming along saying, you're the son of the most high God. And so the spiritual realm is speaking, but now we're looking for somebody Somebody to say, this is the Son of God. And here it is, a pagan Gentile who's responsible for him dying on the cross turns and sees Jesus and utters these words, truly, this is the Son of God. Which is just kind of an amazing thought, folks, that you never know whom God is going to reach down into with his long hand and bring about truth in their hearts. Some of you have got children who are far away from the Lord. And you're just wondering, God, are you going to use your long arm, your outstretched arm to reach them? And here you see this pagan Gentile just soaking all of this in and staring up and saying, truly, this is the Son of God. When you think about it, this whole story from start to finish is very counter to any father-son relationship. The father-son relationship is, I'm going to protect my son from suffering. We don't send our sons to suffer for the faults and the foolishness and the sins of others. We treasure our sons. We love them. We protect them. We want them to live. And yet the message of the gospel is one that shows us that we stand alongside of Christ, Romans chapter 8, now as sons. And in order for us to be brought into this relationship, the father is saying, I will send my son into the world. I will put him forward for foolish sinners. I'm willing to crush him, Isaiah 53 so that more sons can come in. And in dying for us, he's taking our past, present, future sins, removing them as far as the east is from the west. We started off asking, why didn't he come down? He stayed there. This was the plan of God. This was the plan of God for his glory in your life. This was a plan for you. And now we, as his children, we stand back and we say, how wonderful this Messiah is. 
we see his deliverance. Let's pray.